My name is Katie. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 104. Let my whole being bless the Lord. Lord, my God, how fantastic you are. You are clothed in glory and grandeur. You make grass grow for cattle. You make plants for human farming in order to get food from the ground, and wine which cheers people's hearts, along with oil which makes the face shine, and bread which sustains the human heart. Lord, you have done so many things. You made them all so wisely. The earth is full of your creations. Let the Lord's glory last forever. Let the Lord rejoice in all he has made. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Diana. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 2, 42 through 43. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maddie. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 9, verses 10 through 17. When the apostles returned, they described for Jesus what they had done. Taking them with him, Jesus withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. When the crowds figured it out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about God's kingdom, and healed those who were sick. When the day was almost over, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they can go to the nearby villages and countryside and find lodging and food because we are in a deserted place. He replied, you give them something to eat. But they said, we have no more than five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. They said this because about 5,000 men were present. Jesus said to his disciples, seat them in groups of about 50. They did so and everyone was seated. He took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed them, and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Everyone ate until they were full, and the disciples filled twelve baskets with the leftovers. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would open up our hearts and our minds this morning that we would not only hear and be challenged and think and reflect, but that we would also be changed, that this word would go down deep in uh, in good soil in our hearts and develop root in us, take root in us. We ask that you would transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, I think this is week five of this series that we're in. We're calling it Grow, and it's come out of uh, the book of Acts, particularly the Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And we're looking at not only how the early Christians or the early church grew, um, and, and I know when we think of that word, we think of numerical growth, but we're actually we're, we're talking about the practices that they devoted themselves to that helped them grow together as the people of God, that formed them as the people of God. And so our subtitle of the series has been Becoming the Church. What does it mean to actually live this out? Not just to uh, attend a church or be- belong to a church, but to become the church. And so each week we've gone over particular practices 
that are part of the way that we are formed as the people of God. And so week one, we talked about what it means to be devoted uh, to the apostles' teaching, and we talked about the creed and scripture and this thing that has been handed down to us. And I, and I know when you, when you hear something like that, you think, oh, that's great. I love that. I'm all about sound doctrine in this day and age. You know? And then week two, Pastor Evan talked about the fellowship, our communion, our shared lives with one another. And you're like, I love that. I love people. You know? And then you know, the week after that, Pete Gregg from the UK spoke about prayer. And like, oh my gosh, I love prayer. It's so exciting. And the Lord met us in a particularly special way that Sunday as we gathered and we listened to that. And so it's easy to get excited about that. Then last week, Pastor Jason spoke about simplicity and generosity, uh, about them having all things in, in common and how they were mindful, lived uh, in a simpler way so they could live in a more generous way. And you're listening to that and you're thinking, Okay, maybe your excitement level's sort of waning a little bit, right? And then now today we're talking about how the church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And you're thinking, really? Like bread? Like is this, this? I mean, what, what's exciting about that? I mean, uh, you don't often read revival stories and, it, and in the revival story it says, and they broke bread together. They gave, they committed themselves to the breaking of bread. You're like, I, what? No, I thought they committed themselves to reaching the lost, to having altar calls, and all those wonderful things. And so when we see this, and, and, and in fact, a lot of those other things are there in Acts 2. But why in this little summary section is there this phrase, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread? Because if we're honest, bread is the most ordinary thing in the world. I mean, is there anything more common than bread? I've lived in the States for a long time, about two-thirds of my life, but spent about 14, 15 years uh, in, in Malaysia. Don't do the math too much on two-thirds, one-third, all of that. Um, but I remember during my high school years living in, in, in Malaysia, I, I homeschooled, so I had flexibility with my schedule. And very often I would take breaks and walk around the corner to this uh, restaurant um, that, that, that served this thing called roti. Now, if you've traveled to Asia, you may have had a roti. It's a flaky buttery kind of bread. It's like naan, but better than naan. And it's just amazing, and you dip it in this kind of lentil curry thing. And I know, Ron, you've had it. I mean, it's it. And, and you, you, you realize in Malaysia, you can get roti any time of the day. You can have it for breakfast. You can have it for second breakfast. You could have it for lunch. You could have it for tea. You could have it for dinner. You could have it for a bedtime snack. I mean, you'll always find a place serving roti in Malaysia. It's just, it's common. And also, the word roti just means bread. And when you think about it, every culture in the world, I think, has some version of this. Some version of the crepe, or the tortilla, or the baguette, or the scone. I mean, it's just there's some, some kind of staple carb that goes along with every meal. It's just bread. It's ordinary. It's the thing that you make from the stuff that grows in the ground, and you grind it into flour, and you bake it. It's just bread. It's normal. It's stuff. And so here again, we think, well, ordinary is exactly the thing I don't want to be. Ordinary is exactly the thing I don't want my church to be. I want, to be, I want my church to be known for it being extraordinary and special and spectacular. I want to go to a church that is exciting. So, so why are we talking about devoting themselves to the breaking of bread? If there was ever a food item that should 
characterize the life of the church, wouldn't it be creme brulee or a ribeye or something more spectacular? I mean, bread. This is the thing that is the metaphor for the life of the church. Oftentimes we do everything we can to make sure our life is not like bread, that our life is extraordinary, that our life does stand out, and the voices in the world around us say, come on, go ahead, make your mark, stand up, be be special. And after a certain point in life, you kind of hit the wall, and you hit a certain fatigue, and you're like, I don't know, I don't know if I can keep this up. Or worse yet, you encounter a, a, a failure or a shortcoming that then says, you know what, maybe, maybe bread sounds about right. Because, hey, who am I to, to think that I'm something special? It's just bread. And this phrase in the book of Acts chapter 2, we've, heard, we've read this text over and over again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread is a particular phrase. It doesn't just mean they devoted themselves to breaking bread. Like, you know, we, we, we had meals together. Yes, there, that's part of it. But there's this particularity with the way it's, it's, it's designated as the breaking of bread. There's something special about it. And so it definitely has an echo of Jesus' life. See, the, the person who wrote the book of Acts is the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke. And Luke, well, you can look for clues about this phrase in the way Luke has written his gospel. And in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is always at a table. And so they picked up something from Jesus that discipleship happens around meals. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is at a tax collector's table. He's at twice at a Pharisee's table. Twice he's at a table with his disciples. Twice when Jesus is trying to describe the kingdom, he tells a story about a meal. Four times in a parable, Jesus uses the table as the centerpiece of that story. And so no doubt these disciples picked up something from Jesus that said, okay, wait a minute, meals, it's not only part of our own cultural heritage, but there's something about a meal that forms us as a family. And of course, in Luke's gospel, Jesus three times takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. In fact, Luke is careful to use nearly these exact same phrases three times in his gospel. That Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it. Luke 9 is one of the times when he's feeding the 5,000. We heard it as our gospel reading. Luke 22 is at Passover when Jesus takes the bread and he says, This is my body. This is a metaphor of my own death and resurrection. This is my body. This cup is my blood. That becomes the moment where he takes the bread, blesses it, and breaks it gives it. And then Luke 24, the end of Luke's gospel, it's the risen Jesus. He's walking with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember this? And they invite him over to their home and they're like, poor guy, he's clueless. He doesn't know what's just happened in Jerusalem. They think they're being hospitable. They invite Jesus in. Jesus takes over as the host. Would have been unheard of for a guest to bless the bread. But Jesus, the guest says, you know what, guys, I got this. This is kind of what I do. And so he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it, and their eyes are opened, and they're like, wait a minute, we've seen this before. And in kind of a holy deja vu moment, they recognize this is what Jesus does. He's always taking bread, blessing it, breaking it, and giving it. And so by the time we get to the book of Acts, and it says that the the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, we recognize this is not just 
something, uh, a fancy way of saying they ate together. It is that, but it also is something more. The breaking of bread is a metaphor for the life of the church. The breaking of bread is actually a metaphor for the life of the church. It became the centerpiece of their worship. We have early documents from the first hundred years or so of the church's life that tells us that when they got together, they celebrated this meal, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. That was a particular practice. But that practice itself became a picture of their whole life as the church. And so I want to unpack that this morning to say, what does the breaking of bread, when we come every Sunday to the Lord's table and we remember his body and his blood, when we remember the bread and the cup, in what way does that practice shape our whole life as bread, as the people of God, as a church who is bread? Are you ready? The first word in this phrase of what Jesus does with bread is this word blessed. Blessed. Now, when you hear this word, if you've been around church for a little while, you're like, oh man, I've used this word, I've heard this word. This is like Christianese, you know? And if you haven't been around church, you're like, blessed. That just sounds like religious, right? Like that's something, uh, you know, people who, who, who go to church say. You can't just say you're having a good day, you have to say, I'm, I'm blessed, right? Now, I used to live in a city that was very influenced by the prosperity gospel. And so the word blessed got sort of co-opted by the American dream. And the word blessed became a synonym for success. And so when people said, I'm blessed, what they really meant was, I'm experiencing a high degree of success right now. Uh, Business is working out. I'm in good health. All the deals are going the right way. Kids are great. I'm blessed. Right? To the point that, even if life actually wasn't working out that way, you still had to say it. And you still had to say it because you didn't want to inadvertently speak a curse over yourself. And so the prosperity gospel shades us into this place of superstition where we think, well, I can't be honest about my pain. I can't be honest about my struggle. I have to just say, I'm blessed. And as a way of sort of hoping that if we said it enough times, that then our circumstances would begin to conform and the bank account would truly reflect how blessed we are, right? Now, this is a perversion of the word blessed, and it cannot be what the gospel writers and what the scripture itself means when it calls us blessed. Do you know how I know that? Because the Beatitudes, Now, an interesting thing about the Beatitudes, Matthew's Beatitudes in Matthew 5 are very spiritual. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, Matthew, so spiritual. I love that. Yes, let's hunger for righteousness, which is true. But Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says, blessed are the poor. Like, I'm sorry, Luke, that does not conform to the guy that was speaking on TV last night. And Luke says, blessed are the hungry. And you're like, Luke, I don't know if you've gone long without a meal, but I don't think we should say that. That's not the American dream, to be poor and hungry. All of a sudden we realize we've got a different definition of what it means to be blessed. Because what Jesus is saying is even to the poor, 
even to the hungry, especially to the poor, especially to the hungry, the good news of the reign of God has come. The good news of the reign of God has come to the the ones that people call unlucky. Jesus says, good for you. Why? Because our word blessed has nothing to do with conformity to the American dream. To be blessed is to, is to, is to be, have your identity and calling rearranged and restored. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 3, this is what Paul says. He says, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that comes from heaven. You're like, okay, so what are the spiritual blessings that come from heaven? Can I just call it down? Can I claim it like the guy I once heard speak who said, money cometh to me now if we just claim it like that? Is that a spiritual blessing? No, Paul says, like, just in case you misunderstand this, let me keep going. Verse four, here it is. God chose us in Christ. The greatest blessing of all, church, is to be chosen by God. And he's chosen all of us. Chosen us in Christ to be holy and blameless in God's presence before the creation of the world. Paul says, you want to know how I know that you're blessed? It's because God chose you before the world was made, before you even existed, before all of this was even here. God had you in his mind. He chose you. It doesn't get any more blessed than that. And then he says, and God destined us to be his adopted children through Jesus Christ because of his love. He destined us. Now I know we have a lot of trouble as we try to talk through predestination. And how do we work it out? Did God really know? Did I choose him? How does this work? I love Eugene Peterson, the translator of the message. He's writing in one of his commentary books about the book of Ephesians. He says that word there is proorismos, the destination that God determined for us. And he said it, it dawned on him one day. He and his wife were on this very special vacation of a lifetime kind of thing. And they're in an airport in Greece. And he looks at the departure gates and it just says above every different destination, it said that word proorismos. It just means the destination. What if at the heart of this is not debates about Calvinism and Armenia? What if at the heart of this is that God, the destination God has had in mind for you from the beginning of time was to be his child? The destination God had in mind for you was to be in, his, in the arms of Father God. The destination God, the creator, had in mind for you was to be on his lap, to be his son or his daughter. That is what it means to be blessed. And then Paul says, and to honor his glorious grace that he's given us freely through the son whom he loves. See, here's what I think. I think to be blessed is to have our true identity revealed and our true calling restored. To have our true identity revealed and our true calling restored. To be able to say, you know what? I am a chosen child of God. The destination God has had in mind for my life all along was not about this job or that job or this career or that career. I don't know about that stuff, but I'll tell you the thing that really makes me blessed is the destination God had in mind for me was to be his child. That's my truest identity. And nothing can shake that. Paul says it in Romans 8. He says, look, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, no powers of hell, nor angels, nor the past, nor present, nor future, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. 
It's his way of saying, so go ahead, you may define blessing as good health and good success and all that stuff. That's great, that's fine. But you know what? The real blessing, the unshakable blessing is to be a child of God. Come on, church. To have our true calling restored. Ephesians goes on and says so much about this. We can't unpack it all here, but the reason I put in that word calling is because sometimes when we think about the gospel, this is what we think the story is. God created Adam and Eve, gave them a couple of rules. They broke the rules. God said, kick them out, sent Jesus. Jesus kept all the rules, and then God said, okay, come on back. Don't worry about the rules. That's not the gospel. The gospel story that scripture tells is God, the creator, created human beings in his image. They are dearly loved children of God, meant to reflect the image of God into the world. And by our choice of rebellion and to worship something else and someone else, we lost the ability to bear his image. That image became marred in us. And so when God gives the law at Sinai, it's not, hey, I just want to refresh your memory about the rules. The whole giving of the Torah, the whole giving of the commandments was a way of God saying to the human race, I want you to remember what the Father is like. The Father is not like a murderer or a thief or an adulterer. The Father is a faithful God. And in giving the Torah, God not only revealed who helped them remember what the Father is like, but helps them remember what it means to be his children. Being his children means, oh, I live like this now. I reflect this now. And Paul is saying, You could never have reclaimed that identity and reclaimed that calling on your own. But in Jesus, the game is back on. In Jesus, the identity has been revealed. The calling has been restored. That is what it means to be blessed. Then the next word, broken. This is another word that trips us up a little bit. Because we hear the word broken and we think, "Uh uh-oh, not functioning properly. Help, this thing is broken, you know? I, I remember a couple years ago, I posted on Facebook a uh, wheelbarrow that we didn't need anymore. We are cleaning out the garage, whatever, and we had this wheelbarrow and the tire, there was a flat tire, and so I said, hey, anybody who wants it, it's yours for free. And a, a, a very clever New Life downtowner put, blessed, broken, given, you know? <laughs> like, like, you blessed it, it's broken, now it's gonna be given away, you know? And when we think of the word get broken, we don't usually think of good things. We think of like, ah, oh, it's not working, right? Or we think of like Eeyore, you know, in the Winnie the Pooh stories. Good morning, Eeyore, Rabbit says. Oh, I suppose. And so we think to be broken is to sort of wallow in our sinful. I'm so miserable. Would you join my misery? Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says, Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group with his body. He broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. And he goes on to talk about this kind of radical hospitality that now exists in the church where groups of people that had racial barriers and ethnic barriers and all kinds of other barriers. Paul says, listen, if you're in Christ, there are no other barriers. There are differences, but there are no more divisions. There are differences. Differences matter. 
but there are no longer divisions. To be broken, then, is to live with hospitality and vulnerability. Now, when we hear the word hospitality, I sometimes we think, oh, isn't that like having people over and giving them sweet tea and cookies and all that? I mean, that's cute. That's nice. That's fine. That is a picture of <laughs> radical hospitality. But when the New Testament is talking about this, it's talking about a posture of your heart that is ready to make room for others who are coming in Christ. A posture of your heart that says, I didn't think that person would get saved, but oh, well, here they are now. Like, I wouldn't have chosen them as my brother or my sister, but in the Lord, I guess we are. And all of a sudden, you realize there's, to be broken is to be opened up. To be opened up to others. To be willing to share. There is a sense of vulnerability. It's why when we began meal groups here at New Life Downtown five years ago, we said, let's not do topics. Let's not do themes. Let's not even niche it by stage of life. Let's just have meal groups where people meet, eat, and pray. Now, I know we've added other layers that people can do things and all this stuff. That's great. But at the core of it, what binds us together is not that dude, we're both in our 20s, you know. But what binds us together, and I'm certainly not. um, That was a hypothetical. But what binds us together is that we belong in Christ to one another. And so all of a sudden we're able to say, what is God doing in your life? How are you going to participate with him? How can we as your community come alongside and help? Broken, to be broken is to be opened up. To others, bread that is not broken cannot be shared. Bread that is not broken cannot be shared. Can't say to someone, "Can I have a piece of that?" Well, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Broken bread, which then leads to this next word, the final word, given. To be given. We heard the gospel reading this morning from Luke nine. Just want to point out a couple of things about it. In verse 10, the apostles returned. They returned. They described for Jesus what they had done. Taking them with him, Jesus withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. Picture this. These guys have gone on a ministry thing. Jesus has just sent them out. And it's been amazing. They've seen the Holy Spirit work through them in ways that are similar to how the Holy Spirit works through Jesus. And now they're like so excited. And Jesus is like, let's talk about it. And they're like, sweet, a personal debrief retreat with Jesus. Just love it. Private retreat. Bethsaida. Heard it's lovely this time of year. And then verse 11, when the crowds figured it out, they followed him. And you're like, ah, come on. And look what it says about Jesus. It says, he welcomed them. Spoke to them about God's kingdom. Healed those who were sick. And when the day was over, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away. I don't know if Luke means for, this to, for us to see this dichotomy, but boy, is it there. The crowd comes and Jesus welcomes them. In fact, the language is of the language of a host of a giant party. I mean, can't you see Jesus as the great master of ceremonies? He's like, yeah, probably a seven on the Enneagram. Actually, I don't know, but he's like really excited about it. Uh, and, and then the disciples are like looking for some alone time right now. Can we just send them away, Jesus? And I think that this is often how we feel when we think about the needs around us. 
You hear Pastor Jay talk about the needs of the church, or we, you know, Sunday teams, and you're like, or the needs of the city, and like we, we want to try to serve with Springs Rescue or the Dream Centers, or get ready to, to sign up for mentoring kids at Queen Palmer Elementary, or serve with the refugee move-ins, and you're like, oh, the needs, <gasps> too many. Or we hear about global needs, like there's hunger here, there's poverty here, there's, there's our partnership, New Life Downtown's partnership with our communities in Swaziland, in Africa, and, and the ways that we can sponsor and take trips, and, and you're like, oh, it's all overwhelming, and we want, what we want to do in our hearts is to just send it all away. Send it all away. I just, I cannot deal with this, right? Just send it all away, and I get that. I understand that. I feel like that. In fact, it reminds me of the first small group that I led at New Life. This was like 15, 16 years ago. It was with the college ministry, and Holly and I had just gotten married, and we're like, let's lead a small group for the college ministry, and all these wonderful early 20-somethings were over at our house and started at 7, and we'd keep going, and then it was 10 o'clock, and then it was 10.30, then it was 11 o'clock. I'm thinking, don't y'all have to work tomorrow, you know? And so I would get up and subtly, like, turn off the lights and close the blinds, just hoping, like, I don't know, 11.30, shouldn't they be, you know? And they're just like, huh? Oh, okay, Anyway, and they're going and going. So I know the feeling, like, I just, we can't deal with all, we need to send this away, right? And Jesus says to them, he says in the, at the, at the end of verse um, 13, you give them something to eat. You do it. Don't send them away. You feed them. And they're like, well, how am I supposed to do that? Jesus, you know my limited schedule. You know I'm shuttling kids to activities. You know I've got four kids. You know that they're each in different activities. You know that I don't have much time or my... The list goes on and on. I, I don't have much. And Jesus says, well, what do you got? Five loaves and two fish. Bring it to me. You know the story. And it says Jesus took the bread and the fish And he looked up to heaven and he blessed them and he broke them and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Now this is a interesting little detail. Jesus could have blessed it, multiplied it and said, come on everybody, woo, bread for you, fish for you. Like Jesus could have been the hero of the day. Instead, what does he do? He gives it to the disciples so that the very people who wanted to send the crowd away get to be partners in the miracle. Participants in the miracle. That's what the church is. The church is a a participant in God's work in the world. Like, God, I can't deal with all these needs. It's overwhelming. I just don't have enough, right? No, I know. But what do you have? Can Jesus bless it and break it so that it can be given? Can he put it back in your hands so that you can then, then say, okay, Here's a little bit here. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I didn't, I just, I mean, I just texted them that I'm praying for them. I didn't think that that would really mean so much, but wow, I guess it really matters. Oh, I just, I just offered to do a little driving thing here. I just offered to sign up for an hour here. I mean, I, I, it wasn't much, man. I, I don't know. I was just doing English classes. I was just, a, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, you mean it's really making a difference? Yes. Because... It's Jesus who does the miracle, and it's the church who gets to join in. To be given is to allow the Lord to use what he has given us for the sake of someone else. 
to be given is to allow the Lord to use what he's given us. I mean, isn't this, isn't this almost comical? It's like everything we have, God gave us anyway, right? And so, so, so it's just, there's a, co- a certain sort of comedy, comedy in saying, God, I don't know if you can use what you gave me. He's like, I know I can because I gave it to you. So you're like, okay, okay, well, I'll give it back. And then he gives it back like, okay, little time here, little investment there, little phone call here, little, you're like, whoa, wow. Because we haven't been blessed for our own sake. The story doesn't end with, and he blessed the bread. It ends with him feeding the hungry. At New Life, in the 32 years of New Life's history, we've always said from day one, New Life Church does not exist for New Life Church. The purpose of New Life Church is not New Life Church. Nowadays, we say it this way. We say we're in the city for the sake of the city. That's why we've got dream centers and women's clinic, but it's more than that. It's the reason why we're always trying to turn our fellowship into service. Yeah, we're blessed. Yeah, we're broken with one another and we're open and vulnerable and all sorts of this. Great, it's wonderful. And we are given outward towards serving the world, serving one another in our church, serving the city and serving the world. In the hands of Jesus, bread becomes more than bread. In the hands of Jesus, the normal becomes sacramental. Now, some of you may know that word. Some of you may not know that word. The church speaks of a sacrament as an ordinary thing that becomes a means of grace. And so we're like, oh, well, those are the biggies, right? Like baptism and communion. Sure, sure. But there's all kinds, every part of our life when we offer it before the Lord becomes sacramental. Every part of our life becomes a container for grace. Every part of our life is an occasion for God to fill it with his glory, and with his grace. Acts 2, 42 tells us what the early church devoted themselves to. But verse 43 talks about the awe that comes when God does what only God can do. I think that as we devote ourselves to these practices, yes, we're going to be committed to the teaching of the word. Yes, we're going to do, yes, we're going to practice the breaking of bread. And then all of a sudden you look up one day and you're like, wow, you're filled with awe because God took that ordinary common thing called bread and made it more than bread. Would you bow your heads this morning?